Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast Twitter bad boy who has left Twitter, Timothy M. Gill. Tim is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And he's also the author of Encountering U.S. Empire in Socialist Venezuela, The Legacy of Race, Neocolonialism and Democracy Promotion. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Not as happy as we are. Uh, why don't we start with just a basic question? What is democracy promotion? And maybe could you put democracy promotion in the larger context of U.S. imperial strategies? And it's up to you how far back you want to go. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the best place to start in terms of democracy promotion is the way that the CIA formerly helped out particular governments during the mid 20th century after World War II. You know, there's a lot of stories of diplomats and, and members of the CIA sort of bringing suitcases of cash to particular political parties in Italy and Greece and Latin America, elsewhere in Europe to uh, assist them in getting elected, to help them, um, you know, knock on more doors, to uh, hold more larger events, um, you know, to have better access to radio waves and all the things that you can do uh, with more resources. And so, you know, throughout the um, throughout the mid 20th century, mid to late 20th century, of course, of course, uh, the cold war dominated, um, us foreign policy. You know, there was always this hypocrisy that was going on wherein the U S talked about democracy and how it was this, you know, beacon of democracy and this example of democracy, despite all Wait, the internal implying that that wasn't true. <laughs> well, I think so. If you look at uh, some places around the uh, oh, well, around Jake, why'd you book this guy? <laughs> what are, what are we talking about here? This is I'm I'm very distressed right now emotionally. <laughs> well, uh, the Soviet Union was certainly very good. I was just talking about my students at pointing out some of the internal uh, hypotheses regarding you know democracy, particularly as it involved um, black and brown individuals throughout the country. You know and um, the lynchings that went on and the, the, the poll taxes and all the rest of it. And so meanwhile, you know, the U S is talking about, and, and, you know, a number of sociologists were important in, in bringing, uh, calling out these consistencies, inconsistencies too. people like W E B Du Bois. A lot of his later writing was about these, um, both the internal, uh, inconsistencies and hypocrisies and also the global, you know, the, the long history of the U S taking land away from the indigenous and, and land away from Mexico and, so during the mid 20th century, though, there was this assistance that was provided to political parties informally. And towards the end of the 20th century, assistance to political parties and to political groups, you know, NGOs, civil society actors, as the writing was on the wall that, you know, the, uh, the Soviet Union was falling and its satellite states in Eastern Europe, that maybe they should formalize this business of promoting democracy as they understand it and providing uh, funding and resources to um, uh, political parties and NGOs. And so a number of 
formal offices were created. Uh, USAID got into the business, you know, formally created in the 1960s under um, under JFK to promote uh, to provide economic uh, resources and, and be involved in economic development and agriculture and all the rest of it started to get into promoting democracy. The National Endowment for Democracy was created under Ronald Reagan, and the State Department uh, itself has the Office uh, for Democracy, uh, Human Rights, and Labor that begins working on democracy. And so, just like the you know name suggests, it's basically the idea of providing funding and resources to uh, political parties and civil society actors to promote pluralism. You know, if you look at any of these websites, if you go to USAID and navigate around into their area of promoting democracy, if you go to the National Endowment for Democracy, if you go to the state DRL website, you'll find kind of this very um, neutral, nonpartisan language that they are just promoting pluralism, democracy, uh, really these ideas that if you talk to probably anyone on the street, they'd probably say, oh yeah, that's good. You know, that the U S is embracing democracy. But I think once you dig a bit, bit deeper and see who it is they're promoting and what they're doing, um, you find a lot of parallels, I think with some of, uh, CIA activity in the mid 20th century and also just the, um, basic civilizing mission, um, that, that is there since the inception of the, uh, since the inception of yeah, Yes, correct. So how would you say democracy promotion both differs and is similar to, in a specific way, the um, previous efforts of the United States to shape foreign countries? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously the U.S. has a history I guess you could use some folks like uh, William Robinson talk about the Gramscian War of Position, War of Maneuver, you know, that U.S. does have that history of invasion, history of supporting actors that are going to carry out a coup or a military coup, supporting Augusto Pinochet in Chile, supporting dissident military officers in Guatemala in the 1950s, going into Iraq. So there is this very strong arm of U.S. foreign policy. And, and, and you know, you could consider, I'm sure many people would consider that democracy promotion. You know, of course, Bush talked about democracy and going into Iraq. USAID, NED, um, the state DRL programs are more, I guess you could call them a softer side or a more long-term approach or a um, uh, uh, working through civil society to kind of change the ideas. So a lot of what what they do, you know, what NED, USAID, uh, State Department do, you know, instead of, um, you know, historically working with some military leaders to overthrow a government, they will work with a number of political parties that uh, accept or at least don't challenge U.S. global leadership. They have the same sort of political, generally economic views um, of the U.S. They accept U.S. global leadership. They're oftentimes center right, center, center left. Uh, liberal Democrats um, who are fine with, you know, generally neoliberal capitalist uh, ideas of free trade and deregulation and privatization and these types of things. And um, but they'll do a whole thing, all sorts of they'll they'll have all sorts of programs, you know, that they work with. And in Venezuela, you know, what I did was I filed a bunch of FOIA requests and I did interviews. And so I tried to get all these documents from the government and they were doing all sorts of 
things, funding uh, rock bands to write songs. Uh, you know, I've written about this for Jacobin and some other uh, publications picked it up. You know, they they've had this whole contest where they were funding rock bands to write songs that were anti um, the Hugo Chavez government. And then they paid for a producer to uh, record the song and then they were going to put it on. They put it on the radio and they funded this uh, concert in Caracas, the capital city of Venezuela. They linked up with some universities in Venezuela to hold seminars for um, particularly uh, poor and uneducated Venezuelans to basically teach them about capitalism and, and provide them with ammunition to combat uh, the ideas of 21st century socialism. They would create fake NGOs in poor neighborhoods in Caracas and uh, elsewhere throughout the country. And um, USAID would write all the materials and try to subtly, you know, I did some interviews with folks that worked at USAID and were involved in these programs. And they said, yeah, you know, we would create, we would find opposition activists, people that were opposed to Hugo Chavez and the socialist government. We would help them create these NGOs in these poor neighborhoods that had these kind of neutral sounding names about community democracy. And we would write all the materials and basically try to convince them that Hugo Chavez was not democratic and he was not in their best interests. And they would fund groups to paint murals that were against uh, Hugo Chavez. They would fund, you know, a whole plethora of groups, you know, and say nothing about the political parties that they would work with, you know, sending down um, organizers from the from the Republican Party, press secretaries, people that worked in the state parties to hold these, you know, retreats and three day, um, you know, all all throughout the year, holding these retreats and seminars, trying to get them to unify so they don't splinter the votes and um, uh, field one candidate against the socialists. So they had all these programs, you know, that they're doing, whereas you look on their website and it says, well, we're just promoting democracy. The reality of the situation is they're funding all these different groups to try to take down the government that they don't want to see. And it's a more long-term approach. And, um, yeah, it's not going in there and in funding, you know, some dissident military leaders, but, uh, it's still, uh, imperial, you know, it's still throwing a bunch of money and resource bo- resources behind actors to try to achieve what they want to see um, in, in Venezuela. Tim, I wonder if you could uh, contrast the work that these organizations do with the climate in the United States about even the slightest hint of foreign interference in the political process in, in a country where we have to ban TikTok because it's owned by somebody who has some connection with China. And, oh, my God, that just is uh, beyond the pale. How dare they? Is there any uh, first of all, maybe just just talk about that dichotomy and the fact that we would never tolerate anything like this happening uh, for you know, another country getting involved in the United States to this degree. And and secondly, I, I'm curious if if there's any recognition of that on the part of people who work for USAID or, or, or these other agencies that they are doing things to other countries that just would be, you know, considered anathema if, if they were being done here. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer to both questions and, you know, I, um, you know, I would talk to them about, about these sorts of issues. I mean, they're true believers just to I'll take the second question first. You know, a lot of these folks that you talk to are absolutely true believing zealots who believe that they're on the right side of history and that, you know, what they are doing is in the objective interest of 
you know, the progress of, of history, you know, when I would talk to them and say, you know, what, what did you see as your, um, role in, in Venezuela? Well, to show them their true interests, to show them their true interests in democracy. And then I pr- press a little bit further and ask them, well, uh, you know, there are different sorts of ideas about, uh, what democracy is, you know, the democracy isn't just one thing. There's liberal and whatever, Republican, this, that, the other. They'd say, and they would say, well, a, a liberal Lockean democracy or a conventional Western democracy or a normal democracy, things like this, you know, and, and they were true believers that their vision of democracy was the, the objectively progressive way that democracy should unfold and that they viewed Hugo Chavez as manipulating Venezuelans and that Venezuelans didn't really understand democracy and that uh, Chavez was putting these ideas in their head about uh, racial inequality and class inequality. And they would basically sort of, uh, they would, it, yeah, they would, they would say that Chavez was manipulating race and class, right, which and is country. a classic liberal approach to politics going back to the French revolution, it's distrust of the mass. And I, I want to actually take a step back to give listeners okay. a little bit of a perspective. Could you maybe just literally describe the institutional architecture of U.S. democracy promotion? Who, which groups are we talking about? There's government groups like USAID, and then there's parastatal organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy. Could you maybe talk about that? And specifically, you mentioned a bunch of groups. People might know that NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, there's a bunch of associated groups that they might not be aware of. Could we first talk about that? And then to situate listeners, I'd also like to talk about the history of U.S.-Venezuelan relations and this type of shift that happened in geopolitics, both regionally and globally, that led to democracy promotion being a thing. So just why don't we just explain, by we, I mean you, why don't you explain the institutional architecture of democracy promotion first? Who are we talking about? And and sure. Tim, it, sure. in addition to, to the government organizations, I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know uh, if you can talk about the role that the Democratic and Republican Party offices, you know, the, the, the ones that go overseas and work yeah. with political parties, maybe talk about those as well, because I think that's all all part of the same process. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I think the main actors within the U.S. state are the U.S. Agency for International Development. So that was created in 1961 um, with the Foreign Assistance Act under uh, JFK. Right. And, I love when people say JFK wasn't a Cold War. Oh, my God. It just really <laughs> grinds me. My, oh, I hate using that old cliche. It really annoys me. I, I, JFK was a Cold War. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was initially created for economic development, and um, but in the 80s and 90s, it gets into democracy. I mean, I think that the thinking, at least among some folks in the U.S. state, was that now that the Cold War is over, now we can really be who we were always truly meant to be, and we can just promote democracy, and we don't have to support these dictatorial governments just very quickly to jump in, what do they mean by democracy? My sense is they mean literally procedural democracy, free and fair elections. Because one of the arguments of my own scholarship is that we've had a very limited understanding of democracy since the 30s. We get mass politics and 15 years later, we're like, democracy just means voting, you know? Yeah. And I think, could you tell me if that is correct? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, what my argument in the book is that they 
these organizations are really focused on civil and political rights and uh, liberal democracy. So a lot of it has to do with voting. Um, I mean, they have a vision of, I mean, private property is a part of it, you know, um, but it's, yeah, it's limited state intervention. Um, it's the right to vote. It's uh, free speech, you know, journalists' rights. You know, you see a lot of what they're funding. And a lot of, you know, some of these groups that NED and, and USAID, I should say, that they fund, you know, it's not all a big conspiracy. I mean, they fund... In Venezuela, they do fund groups that monitor um, uh, any sort of abuse against journalists and in the media and this sort of thing. But all of it is it's focused on civil and political rights. So, you know, by contrast, Venezuela, Chavez and Maduro, um, um, you know, we're always talking about social and economic rights. And um, and and that was a big part of the democracy that they were um championing this socialist, radical, progressive, participatory uh, type of democracy. And so and I think that's actually crucial and gets oftentimes lost in democracy. Like these are very different understandings of what democracy substantively entails. And I just wanted to highlight this. So sorry to interrupt, but let's return now to the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I mean, so there's USAID and they, um, so they have their programs that they set up in various countries and they have all their, you know, the program leader and then the people that are stationed in the country and the people that are linking up and they're, they're getting grant submissions to fund this and that. And so they'll fund particular, they do a lot. USAID does a lot of working with, um, civil society organizations and community groups and all this type of thing, the state department as well. They have state DRL and, you know, they often operate out of the embassies that exist, you know, throughout the world. And so they link up with groups and they receive, you know, proposals for this program or that program, or they'll have their own kind of democracy. You know, in Venezuela for a time, they had the ambassador distributing uh, baseball gloves to poor children. And that was sort of, you know, seen to be this kind of diplomatic, democratic you know, strategy. The NED, though, as you mentioned, National Endowment for Democracy, which was created in the early 1980s uh, under the Reagan administration, they try to present themselves as being, uh, they're like this independent organization, um, but they receive nearly all their funding from Congress. They have to report to Congress. So, you know, they're oftentimes linked up and in conversation with the ambassador and, you know, the diplomatic team and NED and USAID. I mean, you know, sometimes there's issues. They have their own reports about, oh, if they're working at cross purposes and there needs to be more, you know, linkages or whatever. But as I see it, I I don't see them as being, you know, they might say that, oh, we're, we're distanced from the government, but they receive all their funding and they have to report to Congress. So, for all intents and purposes, I see them as being, you know, part of the U.S. state. As you mentioned, um, you know, so the NED has its own program. So if you FOIA the NED and say, okay, what are you up to uh, up to in, in Venezuela? And that's what I did. I said I wanted to see reports from, you know, quarterly reports and who you're funding from 1999 to 2013. I think that's when I made the initial request for my dissertation. And so they'll send you a whole bunch of contracts that they're working with this NGO to promote these bans in Venezuela. They're working with, you know, this group that's monitoring abuse against the journalists. They're working with this get out the vote drive organization. Um, They're working with uh, this think tank that talks about, you know, private property and has these radio shows. Okay, then they also um, there are four groups that are aligned 
with uh, that are sort of under the umbrella of the NED. And that is that includes a group uh, that is part of the Democrats, the National Democratic Institute, um, the International Republican Institute, which is aligned with the Republicans. And then there's a group, the Solidarity Center, that's um, uh, with labor. And then there is a group that's part of the uh, Chambers of Commerce, Center for International Private Enterprise. And then they have their own programs that they run and they get their funding from NED and they get some of their funding from USAID too. So, you know, it's it's all tangled up. Some call it democracy, bureaucracy. And then, you know, NDI, the Democratic Group and the International Republican Institute, they're primarily the ones who will link up with political parties and run these retreats. And they'll bring down, you know, some organizer, some, you know, uh, head of the maybe it might be the college Republicans in Oregon or, you know, the press secretary in Colorado. And they'll bring these folks in there and they'll run these seminars for these like minded political parties trying to teach them uh, how to interact with journalists, how to develop a campaign, how to in more recent years, they're teaching them how to use, you know, social media, how to use information technologies, you know, how to use Facebook to try to reach out to voters, uh, how to hold a press conference, all these things that they would say nuts and bolts. But also, you know, as I talked to one guy, he said how to help these parties, quote, get their shit together so they could defeat Chavez. Another thing is, of course, there's a lot of discord, you know, there's a lot of personality and infighting. So they were always trying to bring various political parties together uh, to field one candidate against Chavez or against, you know, Chavez, members of the Socialist Party so they didn't splinter their vote. So International Republican Institute does that. They do that into the present. NDI, uh, National Democratic Institute, does that as well. The private enterprise site, they link up with a lot of these right wing uh, think tanks that, uh, you know, you go on their website and they, they got like quotes from like the Austrian neoliberal economists and Milton Friedman. And um, they're throwing all this money at them to, you know, lobby, lobby the National Assembly to have radio shows. You know, they're basically trying to build up all these, you know, in the, in the entire I think you see it all together and they're all trying to build up different actors that embrace, you know, these sorts of liberal, democratic, private enterprise the sorts of ideas. And so, you know, their National Endowment for Democracy is sort of viewed as being outside the U.S. state. But but I, I don't I don't think that's the that's, you know, they'll, they say that. But you look at their funding, you look at what's going on. Yeah, it's hard to square that. Tim, the, we're talking about the, these uh, groups that function uh, under the NED, I, I wonder. Um, I mean, you 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 have a group that's like the Chamber of Commerce group. You have the Labor group. You have the Democratic Party group, the Republican Party group inside the United States. These are groups that are at least ostensibly functioning on different sides of the political spectrum, mm-hmm. and yet. In this context, it feels like they're all just pulling in the same direction. Like there's no distinction ideologically speaking. I wonder, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Is there ever a point where like the labor and the business groups are at odds with one another and what they're doing overseas? Or is it all just generally in the service of this kind of blase, nondescript, neoliberal consensus? That's what it seems like to me, certainly. I can only speak to Venezuela. I mean, I know there's a lot of work. Um, others have looked at, you know, the the activity of the business and AFL-CIO in places like the Philippines. William Robinson has looked at this, you know, in the 80s and 
in the Philippines and Haiti and basically shows that um, what the Solidarity Center that works with labor will oftentimes and historically has sought to work with groups that are, you know, not communist, not radical, not socialist, kind of these sorts of um, non-confrontational uh, labor unions that don't really challenge capitalism per se, right? That they might push for better rights in the workplace or something like this, but you know they're not working. They're not working with some of these more radical labor unions that exist throughout the world, and and so you know the idea is flood those groups with funding and you know they'll succeed yeah i mean i think there's that common turn of phrase and in, involving the u.s something like what is it like politics end at the border or, some, or something of this nature or some something like this. but basically the, that the water's a, edge the water's edge yeah something like this and I, I think that i don't really know in all the literature and it's an under it's an under-researched area i mean foreign policy as you guys know it's difficult because um, it's hard to access elites and well, it's uh, easy for me. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, they don't want, they don't want accountability. You have to put in FOIA requests and they might not talk to you and, you know, they might not inter- want us. They don't have to. I mean, there's several people who refuse to talk to me and, and all that sort of thing, you know? And so you talk to, you can, and you try to piece Only everything twice. If you talk to Samantha power, <laughs> so <laughs> but uh yeah i mean i think that they're all um i think that they, yeah they're in agreement i i think in venezuela certainly i i think that they're definitely in agreement i, I mean elsewhere if there's any i mean i'm sure issues probably come up between them and you know they have their own internal squabbles and in this type of thing and yeah i get the sense sometimes that I have got a sense that some folks in USAID are people that have been there for a long time are a little bit resentful about the way that, for instance, that it was being used under the Bush administration. You know, I was talking to a, a, a fellow who came in and he had Bush sort of charged him with taking control of USAID and what it was doing in Latin America and that folks were kind of resentful about the the more politicized nature that it was taking and trying to undermine a government. I mean, I you know, I see this in students that sometimes they they come in and they want to work in like the diplomatic field or work in development and they're, you know, have this I- idealistic vision and, you know, they're not thinking, hey, let's go over there and get the resources and overthrow government. You know, they're thinking about how can we help people get jobs and have a better life or what have you. So I think that there can be these sorts of issues that come up. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the programs that are devised and and what's done, you know, there's more agreements um, on anything, uh, or, or I think there's more agreement. It seems to me, particularly in Venezuela, I didn't encounter any sort of disagreements between them. I think some folks, too, I would say from places like USAID and particularly USAID, uh, some of the people that I talked to, some of the administrators felt like they were always getting a lot of pressure, too, from Washington just to, like, get things done and, and you know, in, implement all these programs and ensure that Chavez, you know, doesn't get elected or loses this. And, and uh, some of them reported just, you know, feeling just incredibly stressed out and having PTSD from, you know, and uh, being down yeah, there. That might lead to like something like Havana syndrome, right? Like that's sort oh, of well. PTSD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah. They're, they're, they're mostly in agreement. I mean, in that question, though, I, I would say earlier that you had asked about, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's totally American exceptionalism as well. Like, we can't even stomach the idea of TikTok or 
memes being on Facebook or something like this, but it's totally acceptable um, in the minds of many that the U.S. would be trying to shape and sculpt minds elsewhere. I mean, I think that, you know, since Iraq, I mean, you know, there's like the Russian foreign ministry posts a meme and they're the word. They're so bad at it. I mean, it's not even good quality memeing. But it, it's like this outrage. How dare you? You know, this this account should be banned from Twitter. And it's just like, you know, here we are t- directly manipulating political systems in other countries. It's just fascinating. Yeah. And we don't even need Russia. We, we have our own corporations that manipulate our elections. So it's really, you know. <laughs> This leads naturally into a subject we surprisingly haven't gotten to yet, which is U.S.-Venezuelan relations. So, Tim, can you tell us how we arrived at a situation where democracy promotion became the primary strategy by which the United States tried to shape Venezuela? What's unique about Venezuela that they can't do what they did maybe in Granada, for example? Venezuela occupies sort of this unique middle space. So can we talk about it? U.S.-Venezuelan relations and then Venezuela itself and why the U.S. used this particular strategy? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, the way that democracy promotion does work in other countries is that they do work with some of the governments there. You know, if it is a government that they are on friendly terms with, they'll have programs where they, you know, will enhance like CCTV and government buildings or uh, work with the judiciary to how to, you know, uh, be more efficient or something like this. So in some countries throughout the world, they do work with, uh, like, uh, the Congress or the government and, and all the rest of it. You know, it's really interesting because especially now that baseball season is coming up, but, uh, cause Chavez was a, he, you know, he was a big fan. I don't know if you know this, but he wanted to be a pitcher. Um, and that's why he joined the military originally, because he wanted to get to Caracas from this rural area that he lived in, this area of Los Llanos, and, uh, and um, he wanted to get to Caracas and, and you know, show off, show off his pitching skills and hopefully get to, uh, get to the U.S. And um, so when he became, I won't go into all the backstory about Chavez, but he basically, you know, he was in the military. He saw a lot of the poverty that was going on, coupled with um, the, uh, neoliberal reforms that were taking place. And then there was protests in the country in the late eighties and the government fired upon the population. And this was a radicalizing time. And so Chavez led this, uh, attempted coup in the early 1990s and it failed, but he was on television and he really became the face of discontent within the country, discontent with the uh, escalating inequality with neoliberal reforms and so on. So he went to jail and he was freed and he eventually um, runs uh, for office. And he talks about, you know, these same sorts of issues, that there's these inequalities in the country, um, politicians, you know, for a long time, it was a two party system in in Venezuela. And and it was sort of the model of, you know, the U.S. looked at it and said, well, look at Venezuela. You know, that's a model of democracy in, in Latin America. And for many you know, a lot of academics didn't even really pay attention to it. It's understood to have been kind of boring territory, um, you know, from in, in much of the, the 20th century, late mid, late 20th century. 
until Chavez comes on the scene and, and really and he's this outside political candidate and he really shakes things up. So he talks about combating inequalities. He talks about, you know, the discontent and that he, you know, he speaks the language of the population. He doesn't, you know, he um, emphasizes in his indigenous background, you know, historically in, in Venezuela, you have a lot of light skinned politicians who can trace their lineage straight back to Europe and um, might even speak, you know, better English than they do Spanish. And so Chavez was, um, you know, really, he, he was quite different than that. You know, he was a darker skinned guy and uh, emphasized the, the African heritage and uh, Venezuela indigenous heritage and and so on and, and, and would swear and sing and this, that, the other. And, you know, the U.S. really wasn't sure what to make of Chavez. And so when he gets to power and in, in, um, when he's when he's elected in uh, 98 and comes to power in 99, he uh, Clinton is actually in office. You know, he was Chavez was around from quite a few, you know, <laughs> going back to Clinton. And so <clears throat> he actually came to the U.S. and, you know, he wanted to have good relations with uh, the U.S. government. But Clinton kind of greeted him at the back door in a white T-shirt and with a uh, 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 Coca-Cola in hand and didn't really show him much respect. And of course they, they would say, well, this guy tried to lead this coup and he's talking about popular, he's kind of this populist. So we don't, we don't really know what to do, but Chavez was trying to make, you know, work with everyone. I mentioned the baseball because, you know, this is just, you can't picture it now, but he actually threw the first pitch out at a New York Mets game. Um, when he came in, uh, in those years and, uh, he rang the bell at the, the stock exchange and met with investors and all the rest of it and was trying to, you know, talking with them about investment in oil and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, eventually it became clear that Chavez was, yeah, he was this anti-neoliberal guy and that given the rebuffing that was going on from the U S and then of course, Bush comes to power and things really changed with Bush. And I think the turning point was with the war on terror, that Chavez was not, he was very critical of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and he was not on board um, with what was going on there. And he would recurrently criticize the U.S. on his television show. Even before that, he had visited Saddam. He became the first leader in a number of years that actually went over to uh, Iraq and visited uh, Saddam. He went and visited Fidel. And so they, people, dip, uh, people, high-ranking members of the State Department and, and so on were telling Chavez straight up, no, you're not allowed to do that. And he was basically like, who the hell do you think you are t- telling me who I can go visit and who I can't? And so he, w- he was just, you know, defying the U.S. And then at the time, you know, this critical moment of uh, 9-11 and, and all the rest of it, he was just like, this is BS. This is U.S. imperialism. We can't support this. And so that really became... I think the turning point where the Bush administration was happy to work with people and be in conversations with folks that were, would then try, would then overthrow Chavez for 48 hours and right around this time and in 2002. So since that point, you know, ever since there was, you know, in April 2002, there were uh, dissident military officers, business leaders, uh, opposition politicians that tried to overthrow Chavez and they did for a couple of days the only government in the Western Hemisphere to recognize the interim government was the U.S. And really, since that time, you know, there's just been pretty terrible relations between the U.S. and Venezuela. But, um, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned before, Venezuela operates this middle ground. And 
they benefited from Chavez, you know, the, the, the number one resource in Venezuela is oil. And there was, uh, oil was reaching over a hundred dollars a barrel thereafter in 2003, four five going, you know, onwards. And that's what Chavez, you know, used all that funding, used all that money from the oil to, uh, put into these social programs for subsidized foods and healthcare centers and programs to tackle illiteracy and all the rest of it. And so, they couldn't really do anything, you know, with countries like uh, Chile, uh, Bolivia, uh, Nicaragua in the 80s. You know, they could really put a lot of pressure on them with the um, through international financial institutions. And so they really weren't able to do that. Of course, the option was always there to cut off the oil. But there were so many domestic stakeholders with Citgo and so on and so forth that nobody until Trump was willing to go that route. So. The way that they sought to, after this coup didn't work, the way that they really tried to undermine the government was working through these, uh, you know, try to have a long-term strategy, right? To try to change the culture. And and uh, I guess I do think about it in these Gramscian terms, you know, really try this long-term, try to, you know, cultivate a new hegemony, if you will, in, in terms of ideas and try to combat these uh, ideas of 21st century socialism. By funding bans, by you know having these seminars, by creating these community groups, um, by flooding, you know, providing all these resources to opposition political parties so they could get their message out, presumably better. Would you say it's been successful at all? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. You, I think that, and. <laughs> The National Endowment for Democracy in USA, they're always, you know, like these government institutions are always obsessed with benchmarks and are, how are they doing? Are they reaching out to groups? I mean, certainly they make the connections with groups and they're able to finance them. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I mean, they were successful to the extent that they were able to connect with these groups and these groups were able to garner more resources to achieve what they wanted to achieve. They never were able to knock, you know, knock Chavez, knock Maduro out of office. I mean, they often took credit, I think. For example, Chavez lost one election where he, w- he went to a, uh, a referendum and the population voted against it. You know, is that because NED and USAID flooded these groups with money? I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. That was the kicker. And I think in some of the literature too, you find folks, there's a really good book by a guy, I think his name is Lincoln Mitchell, if I recall correctly, but he worked for in this complex and he wrote a book about Georgia and the, and the Rose Revolution and um, Saka Valishi and about how the, the Bush government took uh, credit for all, for, you know, the Rose Revolution and Saka Valishi getting to office and all the rest of it. And he's like, no, they, they it wasn't because of that lists all these other things. So yeah, that's a, that's hard to assess. What they will say too is in talking to these folks, they have this kind of mantra. They're always saying that, you know, our goal was even if we weren't successful, that, you know, if we didn't unseat Chavez, as long as Chavez was waking up every morning and he knew that we were out there supporting democratic actors and their hour of darkness and that he knew that we were helping them out and, and maybe this was keeping them up at night, then, then we were successful. That comes to mind. They, they would say, God. <laughs> but they but have these. I was assuming the power who said that. Deal. <laughs> um, yeah. I think. I mean, Danny. To, to. I mean, I would add. You know, the the success of the the Juan Guaido administration seems to me to be. You know, uh, evidence of of their their victory. I. I you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that would, that's just my take. So, 
Tim, could you maybe talk a little bit about this democracy promotion and the resistance to it in particular in global context from places like Russia and Venezuela? What happened over the course of the aughts and 2010s with regards to these groups? Yeah, I mean, I think that, as I mentioned before, you know, you saw this change um, that was taking the Rose Revolution in Georgia, for instance. Um, I think the guy's name was Shavard Nadza, who was kind of a uh, uh, holdover from the Soviet period, was still there. And and so then he was knocked out of office and there was all, you know, all sorts of the, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine and and you had Bush who was, you know, yeah, look at all what we're doing in the National Endowment for Democracy and, you know, being this kind of cowboy, right? And and say, we're going around the world and we're you know, doing this and that and the other. And I think that was sort of the idea in Venezuela, too, is like, oh, yeah, we could knock out Chavez, too. And and we're in, you know, uh, in Iraq and all the rest of it. And then, unsurprisingly, governments are saying, okay, well, what, what is this? It, you, you know, you guys are, you know, formerly there were, you know, before Chavez came to power again, some of these NED and USAID would work with governments there. And, and maybe that would provide some governments with some sort of uh, international validation, or maybe that it would help them get some projects done. And there are other resources that USAID, you know, and Albania, for instance, you know, they build roads, they do this other places too. And so, yeah, it can be helpful to get that resources in a, in, if you're a country that, doesn't really have a lot of, you know, huge tax base, so on and so forth. But um, I think it, you know, became clear, particularly under Bush, that these, that the NED and USAID were being used to try to undermine um, um, governance, you know, and, and, you know, I've written a a bit uh, uh, regarding their activity in Bolivia. And a lot I got straight from embassy cables too. the uh, that uh, private Chelsea Manning, um, leaked, you know, that, that they are a wealth of information of what goes on behind the scenes. And you had people after Avon Morales was elected going up to him and telling him that we control the Inter-American Bank and um, you better learn to say, for instance, he was calling Condoleezza Rice, Condolencia Rice or something like this, like condolence. I don't know, just playing around. And they were telling me, you know, you better learn her name. We control the Inter-American Bank. And, you know, this is not a threat. This is just the reality and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just giving them PowerPoint slides about, you know, what USAID does and what they control. And and um, then they began USAID working with these opposition groups who were trying to lead a coup against uh, Morales. And in Venezuela, after the coup, you know, it came out that some of the groups that were involved in trying to overthrow Chavez were receiving funding from the National Endowment for Democracy. They were meeting with people in the State Department and a USAID and, and so on and so forth. Um, it was becoming clear that, you know, in Ukraine and Georgia that and in Russia, you know, that there are that they're working with groups that are trying to undermine the governments therein. And so why would they allow that? I mean, it's for me, you know, one of the puzzles actually I'd was, allow it. But I guess I mean <laughs> why someone wouldn't. <laughs> Well, that I, was t- Tim. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but like, again, is there any recognition if if you talk to people who are in this business of democracy promotion that hey, we're backing coups against governments? Like, this is not democracy. Like, is there any recognition, or is it again just like we're the U.S. We're right all the time. It doesn't matter. Whatever we do is ipso facto promoting democracy because that's just uh, the the way it is. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that they would say those are the democratic actors in the country, you know, that that Chavez and all these other folks, Evo Morales, that they don't understand democracy. And so, you know, it's almost it's almost. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I was going to link it back to some, you know, the thought process back in the mid 20th century where they would they would have a justification for supporting some of these dictatorial governments. Oh, well, they're going to learn democracy. We're going to show them, you know. But now they just say, well, these are the democratic actors and we are supporting. And they say this since the present, too, you know, that if you look at Joe Biden and, you know, what he'll say on Venezuela and things have changed, certainly since Chavez. But, you know, we're still there supporting, you know, those that understand democracy, those who are the true democratic actors. So I think that they they see what they're doing as, you know, um, I don't know if it's ends justify the means type deal, but that they're supporting the true democratic actors and and what they're doing is noble and honorable and um, and so on. So I, I don't think that they, again, I think that they're, you know, these, fo- these folks have drank the Kool-Aid long ago and they, and they think that what they're doing is, uh, you know, they're on the right side of history and they're going out and they're sort of uh, civilizing the world. You know, I, I do think, and that's where I bring in neocolonialism. You know, we think about neocolonialism oftentimes of like corporations and other countries. But I think that NED and some of these groups, it is, does have this neocolonial quality where they're going in and saying, well, we need to teach you how to do democracy and we need to teach you, you know, what it's all about. And I mean, I think that's, to- it's, it's completely as, as that sort of colonial resonance. And, and in the book, I, I trace it all the way back, you know, to the I mean, this was the justification as well for genocide against indigenous populations that they, Ben Franklin and all these people that are coming over, these wasp population, that they were the chosen people and that they were destined by providence to create this new world. I mean, they truly believe that they were, you know, you look at what they say, you know, and it's not a conspiracy. You just have to read the writing. You know, they were blankedly against um, Catholics, uh, against any indigenous individual that didn't see what they were doing was correct. It just it killed them, you know, but Teddy Roosevelt said, yeah, I, I think that they are just, they really are true believers, true zealots who believe they're on the right side of history. So Tim, I, we're, we're approaching a point where I think uh, we should uh, wrap things up, but I'm, I'm curious, maybe you could uh, give people a sense of what is going on now in this field in Venezuela with, uh, you know, under Nicolas Maduro, obviously the efforts to get rid of this Chavismo system or the government have failed. I, I joked about the uh, glorious presidency of Juan Guaido uh, a few years ago, but, uh, you know, this isn't working. And I'm curious uh, how intensive are the, the efforts now and ha- has there been any change in uh, what's going on or is it, are they just kind of plugging away at the same, same kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, Trump went, he, he, he exercised the nuclear option, right? He, um, he cut off all, uh, uh, Venezuelan, um, you know, any sort of exports to the U S that would, where the Venezuelan government would make any money. And so since the oil is under the control of the government, he, the, the oil was cut off. And so this really compounded the situation in, in Venezuela of, you know, the, the price of oil has went down, a lot of corruption, you know, it's a multifaceted crisis that's going on in the country that 
can't get into entirely, but um, has to do with, you know, plummeting uh, prices of oil, mismanagement of the oil industry, corruption, and then sanctions, and then having this, uh, not being able to sell their oil abroad, which, you know, they're not going to have any uh, foreign reserves coming in, and that's going to, you know, depreciate their currency, so on and so forth. And so Trump exercised that and, you know, was even talking about uh, invading the country. I mean, we, I, I think we still don't even really know the full extent because he, you may recall there was that uh, episode of the, that uh, those folks trying to come in on a, on a boat from Colombia and just really, you know, and the guy who was behind it met with people from the Trump administration. Again, I don't think the full story has been told and, and I think it'll be some time before we really know all the details on that. So, you know, there was a total, that, that was just uh, rock bottom with, um, with Trump, even though Maduro thought he might be able to reach out to Trump, just given his, you know, erratic, uh, outsider type ideas, but Trump chose to try to, you know, play up his, you know, uh, uh, he wanted to win Florida. You know, I think that's, that's basically at the end of the day, appealing to the anti-Castro, anti-Maduro crowd in, in Florida which many presidents have played to. So the Biden administration has had been talking, you know, had some back channels with Maduro. They have Maduro released a lot of folks. And as a result, Biden has allowed, I believe it's Chevron to have a license in the country now and to operate once again. So there is like a bit of a thaw that's going on, but Maduro is still really saying that, hey, listen, if you want to work with us. If you want, you know, things to move forward, then you need to end these sanctions. And just recently, actually, you know, because Juan Guaido is now not the leader anymore and nobody really wants him to be the leader of the, uh, of the opposition that, that kind of his, um, I can't, I can't imagine why he's been such a shining star. Right. Right. And so, you know, so, so he's no longer the leader of the opposition and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and who they're going to run, uh, going towards, they're going to participate in presidential elections. You know, historically, sometimes the opposition has sat out elections to try to protest them and say, well, things aren't democratic. And, all that. and this is going back to, you know, uh, to Chavez, I think 2005 with, um, congressional elections anyway, but they are going to be go to presidential elections. So they're going to figure out who they're going to run against Maduro, not going to be Guaido, but even the, uh, one of the, I can't remember what they're called, but I think the envoy or something like this in the opposition just a few days ago also said that, yeah, they should probably loosen up the sanctions on, on Venezuela, um, as well. Uh, cause for a long time, you know, they were, Guaido was very gung ho about, Basically, you know, the U.S. coming in and knocking him out, you know, knocking Maduro out and all this type of thing. So it seems like there is maybe some change in thinking that's going on within the opposition. Biden, for his part, you know, I think there was legislation that was introduced just a few days ago by uh, Senator Rick Scott and some from Florida and some others that are, you know, of course, trying to bolster, you know, their credentials against, you know, the Venezuelan government and are basically saying, ah, Biden can't open up to Venezuela. This shouldn't be going on. And Biden, of course, has the election coming up, and who knows who the who who knows if it's going to be DeSantis or or Trump. So I guess he has to think about you know how how his relationship with Venezuela might play out because they'll I'm sure they will exaggerate anything they can about how he's a sympathizer and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think that's where things are at right now. I mean, I, I think the governments are very distrustful, and um, I mean, hopefully, you know, as it goes to election that. 
I don't know. I'm not sure what the situation is in terms of monitoring, if there is going to be any outside monitoring, if Maduro agreed to any of that at that point. But yeah, I mean, I hope at the end of the day, they can have a, a free and fair election and, you know, where there's not all this influence from from outside, inside, you name it, and that Venezuelans can select who they want to be their leader. Tim Gill, uh, the the book again is Encountering U.S. Empire and Socialist Venezuela, The Legacy of Race, Neocolonialism, and Democracy Promotion. You guys should absolutely check it out. It's a great book. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.